We'll pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time together. I am aware of our powerlessness for what we are about to do, the powerlessness of the flesh to speak well God's word, the powerlessness of the flesh to receive well God's word. But we ask now for the power of the Holy Spirit who transcends the power of our weak flesh and is able to speak through my mouth the word of God as what it is, truly the word of God, God speaking to us this morning. And your spirit is able to overcome the weakness of our ears and hearts and eyes and minds to help us to actually receive and see and believe and hear and apply these truths to our lives. Lord, I pray for both slavery and freedom, slavery to your word that I might not say anything beyond what your word says, but freedom that your spirit might be free to speak to us. And you truly know what every heart needs, and we pray that you would minister to us now. In Christ's name, for his glory, we pray. Amen. Okay, if you're new with us, let me just get you caught up on where we are. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. When we got to Exodus chapter 25, we heard God announce that he was coming to dwell among the people of Israel, something he had never done before, something he has never done since. He was going to come and choose this specific people and dwell, live among them in their midst. And when he announced, I am coming to live among you, we started asking some questions like where is he going to live and what goes in his house and who's going to pay for his house and what do you wear into his house. This week we're following that up with one more question and the question is who gets to go into his house? Who actually gets to walk in? Who gets to go all the way in? Who gets to serve in his house? If you were here last week, we walked through Exodus 28 and talked about the clothing uh, that was required if you were going to enter into God's house. Today we're asking Who's wearing that clothing? Who is it that's going to put on the robe and snap on the ephod and put on the turban? Who wears these clothes? Who is allowed in? God is coming. He's going to live in a tabernacle or a tent among his people. Who gets to go in? Who gets to serve? And when you read Exodus 28 and 29 and the passage that Vicky read for us, you discover that the answer to this question is priests. The priests are the ones who are allowed in. God, in Exodus 29, establishes the priesthood and has this ceremony. What you read in the first nine verses in that whole chapter is this ceremony in which the priesthood is established, in which priests are ordained and installed and consecrated. It it will be the priests who are permitted into God's house. All right, so here's our question. What is that? What is a a priest? What is this office that Exodus 29 is establishing? What is a priest? When you hear the word priest, depending on your background, where you come from, how you grew up, you have different images or thoughts that come to mind when you hear the word priest, right? For some of you, the images that come to mind are of vestments, colorful robes, a censer, Liturgies that were spoken in different languages, confessional booths, rosaries, rituals, and religion of all kinds. For others of you, when you think of priest, 
you get a little nervous, you tense up a little bit because it's connected to a theology that you either came out of or disagree with or feel like there needs to be correction. And so, so you're not really excited when you hear the word priest. Sadly, for many of us, for the average person in Philadelphia, when you hear the word priest, it's associated with scandal and sin of the worst kinds, cover-up, and, and, and that word has taken a very derogatory nature. For some of you, when you hear the word priest, it's a very high thing in your mind because you grew up or, or people that you know could not imagine going to God without going through a priest, right? Many of you know uh, of feeling like if you were going to get to God, you needed to get to a priest because the priest was your connection to God. It was your path to God. If you were going to approach God, you needed to approach God through a priest, And that last sentiment is actually not too far off from what Israel felt about their priesthood and about their priests. Hear me again. In the scriptures, God's people would have never thought about getting to God without a priest. There was no way you got to God. There was no access to God without going through a priest. For the people of Israel, if you were going to get to God, you needed a priest. And, and now this is important, so hear this. That is still the case today. That is still the case today. No one gets to God without going through the priest, even today. We're not talking 1400 B.C., we're talking 2011 A.D., and I'm telling you, the scriptures will still say no one gets to God, no one gets near to God, approaches him, or gets close to God without a priest. The only question is, who is that priest? Who's the priest that you need to get to God? Is it me? When you, when you look at me as a pastor of this church, do you look at me as your priest? Am I the one that you need to get to God? Who is the priest that you need? So I, I want us to get there, and we'll get there in a moment. But, but here's the first question I want us to tackle, the, the question you've got to answer before that question. And that is, why were the priests so essential? Why am I saying that you needed a priest to get to God? Why were the priests such an inseparable part of connecting to God? Why is it that you couldn't approach God apart from a priest? Now, we've hinted at this before, but I want to make it clear. In Exodus, what you've learned, and throughout the whole Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, before Jesus comes, we've learned that Israel has access to God, but it is a very limited access at best, right? Israel does have a privileged, unique standing among all the people of the planet. It was to them that God literally appeared. It was in their midst that God came to dwell. God gave the law to them alone. God established this unique relationship with them, unlike all the other people. So they definitely had access to God, but it was a limited access at best. We saw that back in Exodus 19. If you remember, God had come down to Mount Sinai, called all the people to himself because he loved them. He told them he was their, they were his treasured possession. He bore them upon his wings like an eagle. And then what did we read? Did all the people just rush the mountain and approach God? No. God said, I love you. Come to me. And then he warns them, your big toe touches the mountain. I swear I will kill you. Right? And we sort of scratched our head and said, 
Why does God seem this way? He seems like he's schizophrenic. Like, why does he call them to himself and then warn them to keep their distance? And we said God was beginning to teach his people that while he was loving and welcoming, he was also holy, and they could not approach him in their sin. When we came to the tabernacle, we saw these same things all over again. God graciously tells the people, I'm coming to dwell among you. Build me a house. I'm going to live where you live. Do all the people then sprint into the tent, into God's house? No. Again, when we walk through the pieces of the tabernacle, we saw that there was this seven and a half foot wall all the way around as this barricade. And then when you found the one and only entrance on the east side, there was a bronze altar and then a bronze basin, sort of like the tabernacle came with these obstacles slowing you down, these barriers impeding you on your way to God's tent. And we said that most people, the common people, never even got to the tent. The courtyard was as far as they got. Some priests allowed further in. One priest, one time, once a year, all the way in. It's like the tabernacle came with this giant sign on the outside that said, All are welcome. And then by the time you blinked, the sign changed and said, Warning, keep out. And you you sort of scratch your head again. Here God is. He's graciously telling all the people, I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm, I'm buying the house in the middle of the block. But then he's sort of sitting on his porch with a shotgun in his hand in case you step into his yard. Come here all to me. Keep your distance because otherwise I'll kill you. And again, he's trying to teach his people. God is loving, accepting, welcoming. But he is also holy. And you are sinful. It's like trying to get close to fire, right? It's one thing to stand at a safe distance and admire its beauty and be comforted by its warmth and sit around it. It's another thing to get too close, right? That's not, just a, that's not a mean thing. That's just the way that it is. Fire is hot. That's the way that fire is. You are flammable. That's just the way that you are. Right? That's just the reality of the situation. Likewise, God is holy. That's just who he is. You are sinful. That's just who you are. And so there's this great problem, which is how are God's people going to approach God? How are they going to get close to God? How are they going to get near God? How is access to God going to be granted? And God comes up with a solution. God solves the problem. And here's God's answer to our dilemma. Priests. God establishes the priesthood in order to answer this problem. God makes it possible for his people to approach him through the priest. If God's holiness is this consuming fire, then the priest was like this insulation that you wrapped yourself in so that you could go and stand in the very center of the flame. The priest was like this shield that covered you so that you could go and stand safely and joyfully and happily at the center of the sun itself. It was like the priest was your access in and protected you so that you could be ushered into the presence of God. The, the, the priest was like this, this flame-retardant jacket that you got to wear so that you could approach God. 
How did that happen? How did the priest give you such incredible access? Well, one of the most principal things that the priest was responsible for doing was offering sacrifices. He offered a sacrifice on your behalf. Now, we won't get into this much because we'll talk through sacrifices and the whole sacrificial system more next week. But here's what I want you to hear as just a basic thing. If you were going to get to God, you needed something to atone for your sin. Atone, that word of at-one-ment, atonement. We wanted to be at one with God. We needed something to make us at one with him, to atone for us. And so it was either going to be your blood was required or this sacrifice in your place was going to die for you. So if you were going to get to God, you needed a sacrifice. If you were going to get a sacrifice, you needed a priest. It was the priest who offered a sacrifice for you. Remember on the the high and holy day, the day of atonement, it was the high priest who would do what? He He would do two things. Way back at the beginning of the tabernacle compound, where the bronze altar was, he would cut and kill an animal. He'd offer a sacrifice. But his work as a priest did not end out there at just the sacrifice. What he then did was collect this blood walk it through the tent into the holy place, walk it past the veil and the curtain into the most holy place, and then present this basin of blood to God. And there, what he essentially did was intercede for the people who were standing outside. He offered this sacrifice, but that wouldn't be enough. He went into the most holy place to intercede for the people. Basically, what he was saying was, God Be merciful to the people out here. And here's the evidence that the death you required has been fulfilled. Here's the blood. And so what his work there did was basically apply to the people outside the benefits of his priestly work. You got to stay with me. What he did in there as he was interceding for the people, applying the benefits of this sacrifice to the people was saying, God, here is the evidence that no more sacrifice is needed. You do not need to kill them because have mercy on them. Here's the blood. And he would begin to sprinkle the blood on God's altar, on God's mercy seat, seeing here I intercede. I ask you on their behalf. So the the high priest gave you access because he offered this sacrifice for you. And when he did this work, it was as if you yourself did the work. He was the best representative you could possibly imagine because he represented you to God. When he stood there, it was as if you stood there. When he did all his priestly work, it was as if you were the one doing that work. When he prayed his prayers and offered the sacrifices and interceded, it was all on your behalf for you. The priest was your representative, your access in. Remember last week when we talked through some of the clothing that the priest wore, we said that these clothes made a profound fashion statement. And the statement was not just what he wore... But what he wore pointed to what he did. Let me explain. If you remember, the priest wore this thing, this funny-sounding thing called an ephod, this colorful garment. And on it, on his shoulders, were these two stones, onyx stones. And we read last week that on these stones, the names of the tribes of Israel were engraved on them, six on each. In fact, hear what it says in Exodus 28, verse 12. You can just hear it. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrances for the sons of Israel, 
And hear this. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. God makes these two stones on the priest's outfit as a symbol that when the priest, the high priest, entered the most holy place, he was literally carrying the people of God on his shoulders into God's presence. Do you see that? He had their names on his shoulders so that he was bearing the people into God's presence. It's as if when the priest went in, all 12 tribes were able to say, we're all here, God. All 12 of us are here in your presence. Because their names were literally written on his shoulders. He bore them on his shoulders and brought them into God's presence. What a wonderful symbol. And it's that same sort of thing that happens with his breast piece as well. There's another cloth on top of the funny sounding ephod. And this too has stones on it, except it's not two. It's 12. Four rows of three stones each, precious stones. And on each stone now is engraved the name of the tribe of Israel. And so not only did he bring them before God on his shoulders, he carried them before God close to his heart. In fact, that's what it says in 28 verse 30. Again, you can hear it. It says, Thus shall Aaron bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so when the priest went in, it was not even just that he brought you in collectively, lumped in with all God's people. There were even stones with your names individually graven on his heart. So when the priest went in before the Lord, he was carrying the people into God's presence and representing you. And then your name was written close to his heart as he brought you before the Lord. And that's when you begin to see how essential these priests were, right? You can't go all the way in and yet God gives you the priest, a man who's going to offer a sacrifice for you who's going to then take that sacrifice into the holy place and intercede for you so that the benefits of that sacrifice might be continuously applied to you. And who's going to represent you so that when he went in, it's as if you went in, who bore your name on his shoulders and in his heart. And so God establishes in Exodus 29 the priesthood as the way in which God's people could approach God. It's great. There's just one problem. And it's the kind of problem you wish you could say it's just one small problem. But this problem is so huge and so massive and so enormous in scope that when you get your mind around it, when you fully understand it, you begin to realize the whole thing is broken. Everything I just told you about, the whole system is cracked. It's this problem that's so great that when you understand it, you see that this thing is flawed from day one. We're not hundreds of years into the history of priests. We're in Exodus 21, day one. And on day one itself, you learn this thing is flawed. It's like it's broken before it even takes off. And that's because in Exodus 29, you begin to read of the ceremony that they needed to do to install the priests. And everything's going fine. We've got priests. We're going to get to go in. They're going to be our representatives. And then you come to verse 11. Look at verses 11 through 14. Exodus 29. It says, Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and 
put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take, verse 13, all of the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the river and liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them all on the altar. All right, all that sounds weird and funny, but it's just sacrifice. We've seen sacrifice before. You'll see sacrifice again. Look at verse 14. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Part of this ordination ceremony, part of this installation of the priesthood is a sacrifice for sin. Whose sin? The priests. Not the people's. You've got this sacrifice for the sin of the priests. The one who was supposed to bring you into God's presence. And you've got this whole sacrificial system for the priests. In fact, when you keep reading in verse 35 and 36, it tells you that this ceremony lasted for seven days. On each day, they were slaughtering another bull every day in order to atone for the sins of the priests. And that's when it hits you. These priests are sinners themselves. Now, maybe you knew that. Maybe that was obvious. But... Do you understand the ramifications of what that means for this whole system if the ones who were supposed to represent you were sinners themselves? How is the priest going to remove the sin of all the people if he has sin that needs to be removed? How is he going to atone for two million people when he needs atonement for himself? How is he going to offer sacrifice for everyone else when he needs a sacrifice for himself? How is he going to cleanse all of God's people when part of this ceremony is make sure Aaron and his son stand there and washed from head to toe because they need to be cleansed first. The priests are sinners. And that means that this whole system is cracked and flawed and broken and it's just day one. Hear me again. It's just day one. And all Israel's history from that point on is going to affirm is that this whole thing is broken. From that day on, everything that you're going to read is just going to, again, bear witness to this fact. This system is broken. Aaron, the very first high priest, the one who God had in mind when he made this whole thing, Moses is not even going to get down from the mountain to tell Aaron, you're going to be our people's first high priest. You're going to lead the people to God before he finds that Aaron is already leading the people, only he's leading them to a golden calf. He's the high priest of the false god and the golden idol. And and not only is he himself neck deep in idolatry, he's led all God's people into idolatry. And that's supposed to be your first high priest. Great start. And then it just gets worse from there. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are named in this passage. And as you keep reading the story of Israel, they follow in their father's footsteps, only they're not only no better, they're much worse. So much worse, in fact, that they commit so much sin that God literally sends down balls of fire and burns them up. While they're priests, he consumes them with fire. They are lit up, burned, and dead. And that just keeps going and going and going. Last week, we heard of Zechariah, the prophet's vision of Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing to make atonement for God's people, except he's covered in human excrement. And that was the vision that we saw last week. And it just gets worse until here the prophet Hosea say, 
In Hosea 4, verse 7, the more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. You think of that. Here were priests installed to remedy God's people and to remove the sin. And by the end of the Old Testament, what you read is, the more priests we had, the more sin there was. This whole thing is cracked and broken and flawed. And what you discover is ultimately... The priests are no better than the people they represented. The people they represented, they are just as sinful as them. So you ask, how? If if what we said was the priest was supposed to be your insulation, how is a priest going to shield you from God's fire when he's being burned up by it? Nadab and Abihu are consumed by God's fire. How good of a job are they going to do of protecting you from God's fire? How are they going to offer sacrifices when they need a sacrifice for themselves? How are they going to atone for your sins when they need someone to atone for their sins? How are they going to be a representative for God's people when they need a representative for themselves? How are they going to make intercession when they need someone to make intercession for them? Here's what this is like. This is like you getting caught in a felony and your partner in crime will act as your lawyer. How much good would that do? He needs a lawyer to defend him. How's he going to defend you? How is another sinner going to atone for your sins? How's he going to make it right? And what you begin to read as you keep hearing all this is the priest needs a priest. Right? The priest needs a priest. In fact, everyone needs a better priest. Everyone needs a true and better priest. And if you come there, the Bible wants to shout exactly. Now you get it. Now you get it. Because that's the conclusion the Bible has been pushing you towards from Exodus 29 onwards. That this thing is broken and needs something better. You need a a true and better priest. And what Exodus 29 is, is just a shadow of something better that was coming. A shadow pointing to a greater reality. One person said it like this. Here's the thing about a shadow. If you're a kid, our kid's here, all right? Or, Or picture when you were a kid. Imagine you're in the grocery store and you lose sight of mom. That ever happened to you? Right? It's this terrifying moment. You're in the grocery aisle, and you don't know where mom is. And then you get scared, and you begin to panic. And when the panic has fully set in, imagine at that moment you see a shadow of what looks like your mom approaching. Now, that shadow is good and comforting and glorious, but it pales in comparison to when she actually turns the corner and you see her. That's when your joy is complete. That's when you realize the reality is so much better than the shadow, right? The shadow is good, but it pales in comparison to the reality to which the shadow was pointing. Mom's shadow is great, but it doesn't compare to mom. Because when she steps around that corner, now you go, that's the real thing. Exodus 29 and the priests are this long shadow, and it's good. But all it is doing is whetting your appetite to go, I can't wait till the real thing turns the corner. And it's like when Matthew 1 opens up, Jesus steps around the corner. And when the New Testament sees Jesus, 
I mean, they're all saying, this is the one. He's the one we were waiting for. And the pages of the New Testament start shouting, this is the priest. This is the high priest that the shadow was pointing to. This is the reality to which the Old Testament priests were pointing us to. And perhaps no writer in the New Testament speaks of it better or more clearly than the letter to the Hebrews. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews for a second. Hebrews will start at chapter 8. It's page 1005 if you have the Black Bible. I want to just walk you through a very few verses from Hebrews as the writer to the Hebrews tries and explains to you the high priest we were waiting for, Jesus, the better and true high priest. We're going to flip around a bit. Hebrews 8, let's start at verse 1 and 2. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I want to just give you a few ways in which Hebrews is beginning to get you to see that Jesus is the better and true high priest. Here's the first one. It's that while the high priest of Israel, where did he do his ministry? In the tabernacle. And a few weeks ago, we said that the tabernacle was just this earthly replica of the heavenly reality of God's home, right? We said that God gave these instructions so that you built on earth what his palace in heaven looked like. And so the high priest, the best ministry he could do was in the shadow of God's house, the the tabernacle, the replica. But where is Jesus' ministry? It says in verse 8, 1 and 2, that this high priest ministers in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There's another part of Hebrews that says, in the tent that was made by God's hands, not man's. So you think about it. The best that the high priest of Israel could do was go into the holy of holies. But Jesus ministers for us, not in the holy of holies, but in the heaven of heavens. Not in the replica, in the real thing. Not in the place that symbolizes God's presence. He goes before God's actual throne and does his high priestly work. Jesus has better access. He's a better and true high priest who does not do his ministry in the earthly replica, but in the heaven of heavens before God himself. He's better, but it gets better still because his ministry is better. Not only is his access better, his ministry is better. Turn back four chapters. Hebrews 4. Look at verse 15. Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, look here for a second. The high priest in Israel, he could empathize empathize with the sins of Israel because he was a sinner himself. He's been there. In fact, turn one chapter, Hebrews 5, verse 2 and 3. It begins to speak of the old covenant high priest. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin just as he does for those of the people. So the the high priest can empathize with your sins because he himself was beset with sin. This is why if you go to any human being, any priest, Old Testament now, and you tell them, deal with my sin, 
They themselves are beset with sin. I cannot remove your sin because I have sin of my own to deal with that needs to be removed. The high priest himself was beset with sin. And so he could empathize with these sinners. But Jesus, 4 verse 15, does not say Jesus empathizes. It says Jesus sympathizes. He, he can come alongside, but he's never been there. He sympathizes with us in our weakness because he was tested and tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So at every trial and every temptation, he can come alongside you and say, I've been in trial and temptation. But you have finally a high priest who said no to every temptation. Finally, a high priest who does not need to offer a sacrifice for himself. Finally, a high priest who can atone for you because he doesn't need atonement. Who can make a sacrifice for you because he doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. Who can cleanse you because he was actually clean. For we have a high priest who is tested in every way but was without sin. And so not only does Jesus, the better and true high priest, get you into heaven itself, not in the earthly tabernacle or or replica. And not only is he without sin while all the human priests had sin. Look at 9 verse 11. Hebrews 9 verse 11. Go forward five chapters. 9 verse 11 it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So we said that. He's doing his ministry in the actual heaven of heavens. Verse 12. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood of of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This high priest, who is Jesus, has better access, is without sin, and he offers a better sacrifice, securing for you a better redemption. The high priest of Israel, what did he offer? Every day. He would go in with the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the blood of calves and the blood of lambs. And how effective was that sacrifice? You know how effective it was or the lack thereof because of how often he had to do it. How how often did he have to make a sacrifice? Every day and day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. Thousands of years of Israel's history. That means millions and millions and millions of days of ceaseless sacrifice. And yet Jesus the high priest, the better high priest comes and he offers one sacrifice, one time And it's never needed again. Because he offers a better sacrifice. You picture Jesus, the high priest, entering into the holy place. Not the tabernacle. Actual heaven of heavens. And you picture Jesus, the high priest, going before God the Father with a basin of blood. Except it's not the blood of some bulls or calves or goats. He presents to the Father his own blood. It was shed once and for all because it was better than all the other sacrifices. It need not be sacrificed ever again. And he presents to the Father his own blood. And that's when you begin to see the paradox that Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. He's the only one who is both making the offering and is himself the offering. He's the one making the offering and is the offering. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. 
who offers a better sacrifice and secures for us, as it says, an eternal, a better redemption. I want to show you one more. It's better still. Not only does this high priest get you into the better access, is he without sin and offers a better sacrifice and secures for you a better redemption. Look at chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verse 23. This is the last one. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay. How many high priests were there in Israel? Many. Because one would get into office and then die and another would replace him and another would replace him and he would begin his ministry only to be replaced by another because of his death and that happened over and over and over again. And so the best the high priest could do was offer a temporary ministry. But Jesus is the one who died and rose again and defeated death and continues forever. And so his ministry as high priest is not a temporary one but a permanent priesthood. He is forever a priest, never replaced in office, continuing forever to do his priestly work. And because he lives forever, and because he is a permanent priest, look at what he is able to do. Verse 25 again. Consequently, because he continues forever, he is able to save to the uttermost, save to the end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want us to dwell here for a second. What does it mean that Jesus makes intercession for us? What does it mean that Jesus now always lives to make intercession for us? Remember, the high priest would stand by the bronze altar, offer the sacrifice. His work was not done. Why? It's not that he needed another sacrifice, but he needed to bring the blood into the holy place and intercede for the people so that they might receive the benefits of that sacrifice. He was essentially bringing to God the evidence of this sacrifice and saying, show mercy on these people on account of this finished work. So likewise, Jesus intercedes for us. In that he needs not die again. He said it is finished. He sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. And yet his priestly work of intercession continues forever. Continues ceaselessly. Because he is ceaselessly bringing before the Father the merit of his work. And applying it on our behalf. That we might ceaselessly receive the benefits of his sacrifice. I'm saying a lot. You've got to stay with me. Here's why. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about what is Jesus doing now? What's he doing now? We know he had a time where he came into the earth. He died for our sins. He rose again. He went into heaven. And, and I don't know about you, but you sort of picture Jesus in heaven sort of walking around, pacing, looking for something to do, right? Maybe telling the Father, I'm going to take a short nap. Call me when I'm supposed to go back for the second coming. I'll take over then. Or, or playing ping pong with the angels, sort of trying to pass time till he's got some more work to do. That is not the picture of Jesus in the heavens. 
Because what Jesus is doing now is making intercession for you. Here's what I want you to hear, because I think there's a, there's a gem and a nugget here. And if you can get it, I think it could grow your appreciation, not for Jesus' past work, but for his continuous work in your lives. Not just for what he did once for you, but what he does now for you. If you could get this, I think it would enlarge your heart to consider not just what he did to accomplish your salvation, but what he is doing now to uphold and sustain your salvation. That you might grow in this love and appreciation for his present work as your high priest. I want to give you two pictures of what his intercession for you looks like. One from 1 John 2 verse 1. You can just hear the verse. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John's writing to the church and he says, Everything I'm writing, I'm writing so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, my dear children, we have an advocate An intercessor with God the Father. An intermediary with God the Father. He is Jesus Christ. So here's the picture. The picture is that Satan is standing almost over you. Like he was in the book of Job. Hovering over and accusing you of guilt. And there comes your advocate. Jesus Christ. Going before the Father and saying. Father here is the final word. I know those accusations. But here is my finished work. My blood And so show mercy to him, interceding for you. Could you imagine the thought when when your conscience begins to prick you and you hear the lies of the enemy beginning to call you guilty and condemn you? Imagine you knew that Jesus was in heaven speaking on your defense, speaking to the Father for you. You know, when we do our time of confession and Sibby leads us through that quiet, imagine the thought that even though you don't know how to string together the perfect words of confession, Jesus is in heaven speaking on your behalf to the Father. When you're sitting there struggling with sin and wondering, how am I gonna, what am I going to say to get this done? Imagine that Jesus is saying perfect words to the Father for you in your defense. Not boasting to the Father of your merit, but boasting to the Father of his merit. And why the Father should hear him. And know this. It is not that Jesus is on his hands and knees pleading against a Father who is reluctant to bless you. No, the Father is the one who sent Jesus for you. It's the Father's heart for you. And surely the Father will hear the prayers that Jesus prays. Imagine that. If Jesus is speaking in the Father's presence in your defense, the Father will always hear what his son has to say. What prayer could Jesus offer that the father would deny? And so Jesus is even now your advocate. Let me give you another picture of what that would look like. When we speak of intercession, it's a word that means prayer, right? We speak of praying, interceding for someone. What could it possibly mean that Jesus is in the heavens praying, speaking to the father, about us. I could wrap my mind some around Jesus the high priest and his representation and his sacrifice and all of that. What would it mean that Jesus is in the heavens praying for us, speaking to the Father on our behalf? 
I heard this sermon by John Piper, which was so helpful and opened this a great deal for me. What might it look like for Jesus to be praying for you even now? Well, let me give you a picture of what it looked like when Jesus was on the earth praying for one of his own. If you remember, there's a story, or if you've never heard, there's a story where one of his friends, Peter, is about to deny Jesus three times, and Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no way. And then Jesus says, listen, I have prayed for you. It's as if Satan is getting ready to pray on you, so Peter, I am praying for you. Right? Satan is praying on you, I am praying for you. And this is what he says in Luke 22, just hear it. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall. Imagine the thought that in your present trials and temptations and circumstances, that Jesus is in the heavens praying over you, Father, make sure that Shibu does not fall. What would that do to your heart if you thought that Jesus is in the heavens saying, Father, make sure that his faith does not fail and fall, but that he turns back to you? Someone said it like this. Imagine your most favorite Christian hero, whoever that might be, right? Picture John Piper or Tim Keller or or whoever it is for you, Billy Graham. Imagine that every night Billy Graham is by his bed on his knees saying, God, please be with Keith today. What would that do for Keith's heart, your heart, if, if a great Christian hero was at his bedside every night praying for you? Now imagine the thought that Jesus is even now ceaselessly making intercession for you constantly praying for you. You know how those seasons of prayerlessness and you wonder, how did I not fully fall away? How did these 10 years go by and and I still belong to Jesus? How did I not drift away from his mercy? Because even when you were prayerless, Jesus was prayerful for you, interceding for you, speaking to the Father on your behalf, applying to you the benefits and merits of his sacrifice for your sins. I don't read quotes often. I want to read you one quote by this saint named Robert McShane. He said this, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. And this is the sentence I want you to hear. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you were sitting in your living room and you could hear Jesus in the other room praying for you, give him strength, Don't let him fall. Keep his faith. Let him love you. That would give you the confidence to face a million enemies. And McShane says the distance does not matter. He is praying for you. Listen, we've said before, salvation is not this static one-time thing. I prayed a prayer once. I made a decision. I raised my hand. I filled out a card. No, we've said many times, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. But here's the thought. If Jesus' death, if Jesus died so that you have been saved, Jesus lives now and makes intercession so that you are being saved. If his work on the cross is what is the ground of your justification, then his work as an intercessor is the ground of your sanctification. 
that you are being upheld in your salvation. What does it say in Hebrews? He is able to save. He is able. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. His death saved me. His life as an intercessor is saving me. And by his grace, he will save me on the last day. Think of that. Not only does Jesus love you so much that he died for you, he loves you so much that he now lives and makes intercession continually for you. If it is the work of Jesus the high priest that saved us, it is the intercession of Jesus the high priest that is saving us. So then, friends, we've said, even now, you need a priest to get to God. Who is that priest? His name is Jesus. He is the great high priest. And your name is written on his heart like the breastplate of the the priests of Israel. He bears you on his shoulders and brings you before the Father. And he has offered a sacrifice for for you once, himself. And now continually lives to make intercession for you. What a great priest we have. Let's pray.